Hi, this is Maya, and I'm co-host of the Cicada Story Slam with Annie Stewart. We um, set the podcast in a small town in Victoria, Australia, called Dalesford, where we have lots of progressive-thinking people, open-minded community. We run the Cicada Story Slam every third Thursday of the month at a local pub, and we have wonderful stories to share from our small town. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, just checking, sound check one, two, three, sound check one, two, three. Take a seat. I think it's time to get started. Today, when we acknowledge country, I think it's time that we paid our respects to the Jabberwung people, those people who have been sitting on country for 18 months through the freezing cold, the heat, the, no, the rain, trying to save the birthing trees. So today we start, I would just like to acknowledge them. Thank you very much. And we are meeting here on the land of the Jajawarung people. A couple of things, we have some notices. Last, um, last slam was part of Words in Winter and there was various other activities and one of our keen storytellers, Petra Spronk, very kindly put on an activity and donated all the takings from his art show up at the convent. So round of applause to Petrus. <laughs> we are a bit of a two-bit job and we're trying to save up to buy some, uh, some equipment for ourselves. So every little bit helps and I do thank you for your generosity, Petrus. <laughs> More where that came. I just wanted to remind people as well, tomorrow the global climate strike, September the 20th, Dalesford will be there. It's at the Treasury Gardens. And this was handed to me by Dallas. Do you know if there's anyone going shared, transported? Yes, a lot of us are going like Carol and the Ongoing on the ordinary bus line, there's three down to the so you're getting you're driving to the land you got room for any okay anybody wants to go my Okay. Well, I, I feel like I should take a photo of you all here for our friend Myra Irel and her husband and two children who have gone overseas for nine weeks and we miss them so much. And Anthony and I were speaking about the fact that they keep um, posting all these wonderful photos of meeting up with family and doing all these wonderful things and I thought, oh, they might never come home to us. Wouldn't that be terrible? But Kathy Watt on the door for us down the back. Anthony on sound. And the reason I mentioned Kathy is we sat together one day and said, right, let's just come up with all the things. Okay, come on, we'll think of all these things. And as it would happen, it's my naughty brother Paulie from the Painters and Dockers. It's his birthday today. And it only occurred to me a couple of years ago that it coincided with Talk Like a Pirate Day, which 
if you knew my brother, is particularly <laughs> appropriate. So that was wonderful. So we didn't think you had to talk like a pirate, so we did come up with the theme of hidden treasure. But I thought I'd like to start with a story myself today because as it happened, would you believe I am actually related to Captain Kidd the pirate? Well, that's what my dad used to tell me. And this was by virtue of the fact that my great-great-great-grandfather was John Kidd. And he had a daughter, Anne Kidd, and Anne Kidd married a John Stewart, and they called their firstborn son John Kidd Stewart. And then when he had a son, he was called John Kidd Stewart. And the next one down was my grandfather. Now, you might be a little confused about the naming and how it all fitted together, but it never really worried me whether it was true or not what my father had said. Just the idea that I might be related to some famous pirate. <laughs> but it all became pretty real for me one day and quite tangible. When I was at the Immigration Museum in Melbourne, I was working with Imtel, the International Museum's Theatre Alliance. So people that tell stories and, and do things in galleries all come together. And the lady sitting next to me said, how did your family get to Australia? And I went, ah... I don't really know. But as I said, it became tangible. When young, one year I was travelling to Scotland to the Scottish Storytelling as one of the guests, and the Scottish Storytelling Centre is in the Royal Mile at the John Netherbro House. It's a really old house, 1500s. And as a bit of a show-off, I said to Rod May, who was with me, take my photos so I can post it on Facebook and send it home. So there I was outside the Scottish Storytelling Centre. And as it would happen, the second cousin of mine said to me, Annie, if you go across the Firth of Forth, which is the river, and go to Fife, the last kingdom in Scotland, go to Collinsborough and to the little cemetery at Newsborough, and you will find the grave of your ancestors. Oh, no, that's interesting. So we stayed in Edinburgh a few more days and a couple of days later we were leaving and I thought maybe I'll go and have a look at this place. So um, Fife is a long peninsula and it's all rolling green pastures. It's got old volcanic plugs and only three roads sort of run parallel down from east to west and one of them went through the town of Collinsborough. So we got there and I was asking people, you know, do you know of the Stuarts around here? And nobody had heard of any Stuarts. Nobody knew anything. And I went, oh, that's strange. And when I looked again at the um, email from my cousin, I realised that it was the kids that I was related to. So we drove around. We, in fact, passed the cemetery twice because there was an old tree hanging over it. And finally we found it, the Newborough Cemetery. And we entered in. Well, there was an old crumbling chapel. There was headstones. Some had fallen to the ground. Some were crumbling. But it looked across the Firth of Forth back to Edinburgh. It was a spectacular last resting spot. So we took quite a while and we were looking around for the kid family until finally Rod said, Annie, I think I found it. And so I went over and I read and there, in fact, were two headstones with name after name of all the kid families going back 
in time until it got to the latest one was John Kidd died in Melbourne in 1853. Well, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you see, the name had been handed down, the John Kidd Stewart, but before my dad, the kid was dropped. But here's the rub. The name John stayed in the family because my dad was Noel John Stewart and he named my big brother Anthony John Stewart. The name had come down. And I couldn't believe it because the first John, back from 1853, to our John, but tragically our Anthony John was killed in East Timor, as many of you know. The name stopped there, the tragedy, that the name would never be passed on. Well, I just burst into tears because I had never thought of the immediacy and of a family name. Well, I have a son myself and I didn't include John in his name. I've called him Dominic Anthony. So he does have a touch of his uncle there. But I couldn't help but think of families and that old name that had come down through the generations to proclaim our family. But the funniest thing was, because there's the two headstones and right next to it, there's an old crumbling chapel. And on it, there's a little carving of a skull and crossbones, the sign of the pirate. Ladies and gentlemen, maybe I am related to Captain Kidd, <laughs> the pirate. <laughs> So we're going to move along now and I have lined somebody up and would like to ask Laurel to come up and tell us. bags, business cards, phone things, lip gloss. I, I had a photo sent to me today. My um, ex-husband minds my two little baby grandchildren and he's absolutely fallen in love with them. And when he and when I can't get down to Melbourne, he, he sends me photos of them. And I was so delighted because one was a um, two-year-old Two, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, one was doing the mechanical thing, uh, building things with engines, and she is just absolutely into engines and motors and so on, and the other one was playing the piano, and this was in this little 
path that they had just discovered. And I was really reminded how when you're a child, everything is an adventure and everything is some amazing find, amazing hidden treasure. So when I was a child, I was unbelievably bored at school. And so my friend and I would decide that we would go camping. And so we'd go, and this was, we were grade six. Now, are there any children here? Because I don't want to tell this. If... Oh, okay. So in grade six, we worked out that we could get one of my mother's uh, cake coolers and uh, uh, a, a couple of pieces of bread, and there was always plenty of meat in the fridge. They were quite big meat eaters. So we'd go off and we'd go hitchhiking. We lived on the Mornington Peninsula and all of our 12-year-old selves would get in a car with any stranger and go off and we'd go to John of Buang and we'd go to all sorts of places. And what we'd, when we got there, we would find a beautiful spot where we could cook our lunch. So and we had to time this. It was quite good. It was quite good for maths and organisational things, all sorts of stuff, because we had to be actually get back on time for school to finish. So what what happened was just any anybody old enough to remember those great big VB cans? They were really huge, and so we would always find four big VB cans. We'd put our mother's cake cooler on the top of the BB cans and we'd, we'd build our little fire, we'd light our fire and we'd have our lovely barbecue. And this particular day, I remember we were in Baronia and we just had this wonderful time and it was a gorgeous glade and we just lay back and looked at the sky and the trees and the flowers and so on and then we decided to go for a walk. But being 11 or 12, we must have been 12 surely, um, we didn't put the fire out. And children don't get this stuff. I really I really do see this. We didn't put the fire out. So we're wandering around and when we came back, we saw that actually the bush had caught fire. I was like, oh, my God, we're going to be in trouble. We're going to be on the news. We'll never be able to do this again because we've done it a lot. And my mother always wanted to know where the cake coolers were. And then coming towards us was this man on a tractor. And we were going, oh, my God, now we're really in trouble. We're really in trouble. And uh, he came over and he said, girls, I think we're just going to need to put this fire out. So just move out of the way, would you? And we'll just push all the dirt over the fire and bush we didn't get on the news the bush didn't catch fire we didn't get on the news and I remember thinking my god what a hidden treasure a man with a tractor you gotta love a man with a tractor Thank you so much, Laurel. I put her on the spot tonight. We do some work at my little story house and garden. She calls herself a facilitator. A facilitator. 
but on the spot she can tell a story, so thank you for that. We'd now like to ask one of our regulars, Don, if you've got a story for us on hidden treasure. Please put your hands together for Don Harvey. Only, only one time in my life that I really looked for a hidden treasure, and I actually did look for a buried treasure for about three months, I reckon it must have been. I can remember it precisely, and I have no trouble recalling not only the actual what things looked like, but the way I felt about a lot of things at the time. I want to go back to 1957 and 58 when I was 11, 12. And the area uh, around here in Dalesford was very much like Eagle Hawk where I grew up. It was the end of the mines. I can remember still the, the mines working each day. We had a mine only 60 metres across the road from our place, 60 yards, of course, across the road from our place. And uh, the, the town was obviously in decline. Uh, there were empty houses. There were brick uh, gutters with no houses. There were gas pipes with no houses. And Daleswood was much the same way, and it was a it was a hard life my, for lots of us. I, uh, my parents of both and parents of all my mates had lived through two wars and the depression. Uh, they had done it hard. Famous family story of one of my uncles being on the outer with the others because somebody offered him threepence to eat a blowfly. <laughs> and he took the threepence. And uh, uh, my father kind of never forgave him. But uh, the the old man, although we, were, we weren't really poor because the old man had a job, in fact, two jobs. He was a tram driver and and did gardening around the place. And, uh, but I had mates whose uh, fathers had uh, been miners and were dying of miners' tysis and uh, silicosis, they call it these days. But you knew when a guy was crooked because when he coughed, the blood used to come out between their fingers. And uh, so that was the, the way life was. Uh, and, uh, it was a stage I was angry with my father. We only ever had one kind of difference. Uh, it started in 1956 and went till about 73. Uh, when I had kids of my own and, and kind of could see where he was coming from a bit. And, uh, uh, but the... And, well, I told my daughter that I was going to tell this story tonight, and I said, 
not sure, it's a bit sad. And she said, Dad, when you tell it, they'll laugh. So I don't know about that. So I thought it was, it was pretty serious. And uh, But uh, in the Christmas 1957-58, I, I, I had kind of been a little angry with the old man for 12 months because he wouldn't let me go to the high school when I finished grade six. No, I kind of liked school, had to go to the tech school. And uh, although it's been fantastic over the years to be able to play bits of wood and file metal and all that, uh, I really uh, wish I'd have gone to the high school right from the start. But uh, at the end of 57, end of Form 1, uh, I was kind of a bit angry with the old man for sending me to the tech. But my mother died very suddenly. Uh, you know, the, uh, within minutes she was gone, apparently. And um, that made me, for some reason, even more angry with the old man. And uh, I kind of uh, really felt that working with my hands wasn't all it was cracked up to be. I wanted to be a scholar. Now, there had been a kind of rumour around the, the gully that we lived in that there was a typewriter in one of the diggers' holes. I don't know if you know what a diggers' hole was. Uh, around here, they were actual shafts. But up home where it was hard rock, uh, they were more irregular because guys would wait to where the quartz was poking out the surface and follow a vein of quartz down. So the, the holes were more irregular, just as dangerous. And often uh, they would be go down, you know, 50, 60, 100 feet, uh, was 30, 20 or 30 metres deep. Uh, they would be filled in when sometimes by uh, putting dead branches in, uh, but often the usual thing that these holes were filled with was household rubbish. You didn't put the bin out in the 50s, You'd, and they were still doing it here up until the bin collection came in five years ago. What you did was you took your rubbish out of the bush, found a digger's hole and dropped it in. And uh, it was it was good for kids because uh, I used to have to walk a mile from the bus stop to home and go past several of these little tips along the way and we would fossick in the, in the through people's rubbish. Uh, for for fun, I I have great. I've still got I've still got a, uh, a, a. I picked up a lampshade when I was at primary school. I've still got a, the the thing at home. Uh, it looks like an Academy Award, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the story was there was a typewriter in a digger's hole, and that I had. I, I said I loved school, and at that stage it was into the quest, you know. So my quest became finding this typewriter, and of course that would be the key to my communications. And uh, I, uh, 
the worst thing was you had to kind of go down in into A, it was a, a miner's hole when you didn't know where the bottom was, and B, it was usually half full of rubbish. Uh, so, uh, and for three, three or four months it must have been, just about every night when I got off the bus, I would go to a different hole and rake through trying to find this typewriter because I kind of knew the typewriter was there. Although I didn't particularly, it came from, the story came from a kid I didn't really get on with, but uh, I believed him enough to think it must be there. I found the typewriter eventually. Not, not after fossicking through four foot of rubbish over a possible hole a hundred feet deep, but I, it came to me because everybody knew I was mad keen on finding this typewriter. A, a mate told me the hole that it was at, so I went. I went. I knew that hole, and I had looked through it a couple of times, but never found this typewriter. Found the typewriter. Somebody had beaten me to it with, and uh, the old guys used to carry uh, a hammer because you would knock the brass bits off or the lead bits off whenever you were getting scrap metal. And the typewriter, the keys had been, it was an old stand-up typewriter, it was sitting out on the side. So I, I walked up to it thinking, God, it's there. And I could see straight up that somebody had tried to knock the lead off the keys, you know, tried to knock the little chrome bits off the corners at the top of it. And it was utterly beyond me. I just couldn't. Uh, and and I, I can remember crying. I can't remember whether I cried there or when I got home or when I went to bed, but I cried about uh, the typewriter not being the treasure I thought it was. But fortunately, uh, not long after I started reading the uh, prisoner of war stories and uh, I got hooked, then I thought my communication skill better not be something that needs a typewriter. I'll be like these guys in the wooden horse who were, although they were in prison, there were some guys who could make a radio out of three bits of copper wire and that kind of thing. And there were other fellows who were teachers and they would teach the other prisoners by writing in the sand uh, what they wanted to impart. And so the typewriter was good in one way. It put me off thinking communication came from the keys and uh, I got back into thinking, well, I can teach people whether I've got a typewriter or not. Thank you, Don. I always enjoy your reminiscences and it's especially um, relevant today. I don't know if anyone's seen the advocate for this week a minor scrap of paper that sometimes arrives in all that plastic. <laughs> Drives me insane now. But Patrick Jones has written a letter going, how come the tip isn't as fun as it used to be? 
And it, there was even an ad for the person to start running the um, transfer station in the back of the advocate. So take a look. And it was interesting to hear people used to sadly head out in the bush and dip their rubbish. Um, who's on the list, Mrs. White? Petrus Frog, are you ready? I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I heard pleasures instead of treasures. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> During the month, many pleasures went through my mind, and I, I will have to keep most of them hidden. Anyway, this is what I wrote. Before viewing the full moon, it was full moon last week. A couple of months ago, I watched the full moon come up. It was most beautiful to behold. In order to share this special event, I wrote one of my columns for the advocate, that scrap of paper, in relation to this and added a few moon stories which I picked up on my travels. I first became aware of the moon's path in the sky a very long time ago when I moved away from the city into the Flinders Ranges. It was here that I first saw full moon rising, something I had been deprived of while living in the city. And what a glorious experience it was to observe this event for the first time. I was sitting on my veranda one evening when a huge globe, soft as a balloon and richly colored like an egg yolk, rose from behind the hills to illuminate the landscape with its strange pale color, colored light. The color which became paler as the moon ascended into the sky. During another time, as an artist in residence in Korea, and as a treat, I was taken on an evening walk by some of my students. Imagine here a path alongside of a mountain. We looked down onto a lake. At one stage, we came across a huge rock standing on the side of the path, on it some carved calligraphy. I was told, I was told that it said, full moon viewing point. What a rich culture to give that event this kind of attention. The memory of this created an idea. At the end of my moon column, I invited people to come and watch the full moon rise as a monthly event. I found what I thought was a perfect spot at the side of Lake Delford opposite the restaurant. It has an un unimpeded view of the east from where the moon comes up. I received about 10 replies from people who would be interested. Some had kids, excellent. The full moon for September was on the 14th. I sent out an invite to those who had responded to my article and some information about the moon, the viewing spot and how to get there for those who were not familiar with the lake. After viewing the full moon. The full moon viewing last Saturday, the 14th of September, was a beautiful event and as such a success. The end of a sunny spring day. There were 10 adults and seven children. The children made it extra special. Since the sun was supposed to set at 6.07 p.m. and the moon was supposed to rise at 6.13 p.m., we gathered around that specific spot at 6 o'clock. Introductions and friendly chat during the dusk 
watching the early evening breeze settle and the lake become a mirror. A peaceful feeling took hold of the evening, while we, the expectant audience, were keeping an eye on the horizon, because although the moon was supposed to rise at 6.13, from where we were standing, the moon took its time to rise from behind the hill. When it finally appeared, it was a moment filled with enchantment, a moment from the fairy tales we enjoyed as children. The huge bright globe appeared through the trees on the edge of the horizon and slowly, almost majestically, made its way into the darkening blue space. It was large, it was bright, and when it also started to appear in the lake as a mirror image, the moment became captivating. A group of 17 people looking as one at a natural phenomena even older than the human race added to the fascinating aspect of it and made the moment, in a sense, primeval. It was at this moment that two of the adults Two of the adults sang a beautiful moon song. The loveliness, the loveliness of the night was complete. The hidden pleasure exposed. Thank you so much, Petrus. As I said earlier tonight, um, Petrus, Afterwards, in winter, one of his events donated the money he made. You just have such a great capacity for bringing community together, and I really appreciate that. What a fabulous idea to ask people to come and enjoy the rising of the moon with you. Thank you for your story, Petrus. Now one of our favourite old regulars, Toby Sine. A round of applause. They just are. Um, hello. International Pirate Day. Talking about Pirate Day. I, I was like the pirates, you know, everyone thinks of the sort of Cornish pirates now, but I was like the gentleman pirates with a sort of cynical attitude, you know, who were kind of like um, Etonians gone wrong. But uh, in the movies, they don't really do them. Or they a little bit, not so much anymore. Anyway, Hidden Treasures. Hidden treasures, yeah. Well, um, I'll tell you a couple of short stories and then I'll get to a more general point. My first story, very early on, when I was about four, my mother took my older brother and my older sister and myself to the beach. And I don't remember which beach it was, but it seemed like a jungle in my mind because there was all this growth that grew out sort of over the sand. You could go in under it in the shade. I remember that. It's probably tea trees, but in my mind it's, you know, palm trees and macaws and toucans. Anyway, at a certain point, my brother went off for a long walk up the beach, and when he came back, my sister and I were playing, and he had this rather superior look on his face, which is nothing unusual. He, he was born to play one of those superior pirates, actually. But um, he came back, and we were saying, oh, what is it? He said, oh, well, I went for a walk up the beach, and I found hidden treasure up there. And we said, really? Like, pirate treasure? He said, well, maybe. I'm not sure, but it's hidden treasure. And we're like, where is it? And he said, well, you go up this far, and there's a rock pool, and you turn there, and you'll see a, a dune that rises up and there's a sort of a, a shape in the trees and you go in there and you'll find it's in there. It's in this dune down behind it. And uh, look, don't tell mum, okay, because she'll want to take it away if you tell mum. And so Fiona and I kind of sort of snuck off up the beach. We went for this long walk and we found the rock pool and we turned left and we went up 
as you can imagine, full of expectation, couldn't wait to see this trash, you know, treasure chest full of jewels and gold. And we came over the edge and looked down. And I wish someone had a camera there. That would have been a real hidden treasure because our faces would have been instant disappointment emojis. Because there, in the dunes, steamingly fresh, was one of my brother's turds. Uh, and my sister and I were just standing there going, To this day, I can never quite hear the phrase hidden treasure without a sense of, yeah, but what if it's a, you know, what if it's one of those, you know, uh, the, the other hidden story, I, I, I loved Don's story. I grew up here and it was still very much, as he said, like where he grew up um, in the 70s. It was still a mining town, the, the tail end of a mining town. And I too got everything at the tip. Um, we didn't get pocket money. I grew up in the street full of boys. If we wanted push bikes, we all went to the tip and we found parts. It took months. You'd find enough parts to build a bike. You'd help each other then put the bike together. We'd go to Milton Quanchi's dad's shed and we'd oil all the bits and everything and we'd work at the Sunday races to get money to buy tubes and tyres. So it was kind of like primitive socialism. We worked together, but also individualist in that what you found was for your bike. Of course, you could trade and swap, but anyway... Um, I found lots of things at the tip and in other places. Um, one of my favourite memories is at the primary school, there was a big, deep slope with a giant um, gum tree stump there, you know, because when gum trees are really big, you chop them down, right? So it's big old stump. And we all used to climb on the stump and jump down the long side. It's kind of a dare into this long grass and stuff that was there. And one day I jumped off the, the deep side of this tree stump and landed on a clump of grass, which came out under my feet as I landed on it. And a whole lot of stuff rolled out from under it because, as Don was saying, people buried their rubbish. And there was all this rubbish under that clump of grass. And I went through the rubbish, of course, because, you know, everything in the world is rubbish. We're all dead stars. You know what I mean? Everything is a, is a million times recycled already, right? So uh, for me, it was kind of instinctive. I went through and I pulled out an Egyptian, half of an Egyptian figurine from the waist up with the pharaonic hat and the crook and the flail. And it was about sort of yay big and it was sort of coloured red, but it looked like it was made maybe of gypsum or um, some kind of limestone-y type thing. And I went, oh my God, Egyptians in Dalesford. What, what, when did the Egyptians come to Dalesford? That, that, hang on, this just seems ahistorical somehow. I was eight at the time. I, I think I did know the word ahistorical because... Keith Butler from the Historical Society had taught it to me. Anyway, um, and I was very excited. I, I, you know, I remember I raced home later on that day. I said, "My mum, the Egyptians must have come to Dalesford because look what they found." And she went, oh, "No, it'll be a digger from the First World War who had bought it at Giza and sent it back to his family, and they've dropped it and broken it and thrown it out because all the Australian soldiers bought all this stuff, you know, when they were at Giza." And I said, "Ah, oh, so it's not Egyptian." She went, "No, it's Egyptian. It's from Giza, but like it's you know something a guy bought." in the souks at Yakiza and his family have dropped it and broken it. And I went, oh, okay. Well, that's, okay, so it's still getting off for 100 years old. She went, yeah, I guess so, yeah. And I put it up on the shelf, mantelpiece at home, and, you know, it's it's still there, or 50 years later. Um, and uh, <laughs> the thing is that about 12, 13 years ago, there was a big Egypt exhibition at the National Gallery in Canberra. And we took Kit up to it, my son. And I had no idea until I went into one of the rooms, where, which was like a reproduction of a burial chamber, 
And there were hundreds of these little Egyptian figurines of a pharaoh exactly like mine, same color, same material, as far as I could tell, sort of thing. Uh, all the, these, these were original ones. These are ones from 3000 BC. And I looked at them and I thought, that's precisely like mine. If, if the people in the soup made that as a copy, they did a really good job. But then I remember thinking, but they also stole things from tombs and sold them onto tourists in the souks in those days. Now you can't do it, of course. It's all really strictly controlled, unless you're very rich, in which case no laws apply. But um, I don't know whether I have something that's 100 years old or something that's between three and a half and 4,000 years old. It's quite possible that that was a genuine Egyptian theft from a tomb, which is now sitting on my mantelpiece from a rubbish pile in Dalesford. Um, so that's, a, that's another little hidden treasure. They come up all the time. I got a beautiful map at the Dalesford Sunday Market some years ago, which... Uh, I thought it was a fake, and, um, well, I didn't really think about it at the time, but I'm now fairly convinced it's a four-color aquatint of classical Italy, about that big, with a cartouche from the map maker, Jacobo Casteldo, which, based on my research, I now believe was published between 1592 and 1597, and that was the Dallas Sunday Market for 20 bucks. I was just sitting there, on, on, there's a guy up there who sells old books and pictures sometimes, and, um, yeah, that, you know, it's amazing what you can find out there. I was going to go into this whole thing about the nature of poetry. I've run out of time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but I, I will just say this quickly. My favorite form of hidden treasure, though, is a poem. When I was also eight, I wrote my first poem. I sat in front of a friend's fireplace, and I was looking at the coals, and the room was full of stoned adults and drunk adults, and because it was the 70s. And, and they were all really boring, and I sat there, and I got out the pen, and I wrote a poem about the fire. I recognized that it was an animal, that it lives, it breathes, it eats, it dies. And that was the beginning of my career as a conscious writing poet. Um, I'd been making it up since I could talk, but I began writing when I was eight. And the thing I love most about a poem is that the potential of it is always there, but it's not there until you imagine that potential as a real thing. And then you take a pen and you begin to describe something that might happen 10 or 15 or 20 minutes from now or two hours from now, which is a completed poem. Because the poem isn't just a response to what you're looking at. It's a thing in its own right. Bob Dylan said the best words I ever heard about poetry. He said, a poem is anything that can walk by itself. And... Um, I, it has a life of its own. They're my children, and they're separate from me. And uh, the magic for me of that act of creativity is that it's there. It's in the things I observe. The possibility is totally there always. But it doesn't exist until I uncover that within it. And it is a hidden treasure, and it's constant. Most artwork has something of this nature to it. And what it does for me is that it refolds in upon itself because the metaphor I'm discovering, I realize, is part of a much bigger metaphor. I read an English art critic a while ago saying that metaphor, so that art is a metaphor for the joy we take in existence. And um, the thing that I love most when I go to a poem is that when I start to peel it back, I've got no idea what it's going to be. It's coming from within me. It's also coming as a response to something that's out there that complete circuitous interconnectedness of me and everything around me is the thing I love because it points to 
I think getting back to the idea that we're all rubbish, we're all dead stars and everything. The inseparability of ourselves and the infinite, we are children of the infinite, we cannot be removed from it, we partake of its qualities. Within our tininess, infinity. That's what I love finding in those moments. That's for me is the greatest hidden treasure in my life. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Toby. That really wound us around through all your treasures. I think the classic line for me is always going to be from now on. So there were Egyptians in Dalesford. I'm sure we could market that, mate. We better get onto the marketing department. I love it. But now we'd like to invite a new teller up. Uh, hasn't been at the Cicada before. And Joanna Parker, if you'd like to come on up. Round of applause. Guess the hidden treasure. Do I need to talk into that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So let's see if you can guess the hidden treasure. So I'm Joanna, Joanna Patricia Parker, daughter of Leonard Allenson Parker, granddaughter of Evelyn, granddaughter of William Parker. Daughter of Gail Bernadette. I do have to look at this, sorry. Um, my father was born through a storm beginning in Aspendale, contractions all the way on the back of the bicycle from Notuck Avenue in Aspendale to Chelsea Hospital. Born a healthy lad, first born to my grandmother in 1943. His hidden treasure was storytelling as well as running away from school, giving cheers with the Guinness and making others laugh with his gentleman nature. I massaged a woman on her 70th birthday the other day. Her name was Evelyn, my grandmother's name. She was Jewish and her 96-year-old mother, Sylvia, my great aunt's name. <laughs> Uh, just before I came here this evening, I've been finding hidden treasures, treasures because I'm packing to go camping and I found this necklace um, <laughs> that my mother wore and she died 14 years ago. Last week before I was going out to my best friend's birthday, mi mejor chilena emana, my best Chilean friend, um, I found my grandmother's sparkly necklace that was given to me. So, hidden treasures. Mm. Just before I was leaving and sorting, I found this piece of kyanite, which was my best Italian girlfriend, Dora, gave to me. Uh, we were friends for 11 years. We had a falling out at the end of last year. And now it's okay. <laughs> so, maybe you can guess the hidden treasure. I think it's me. So. <laughs> Thank you, Joanna. That was a good start to your cicada career. So we hope to see you again back another day. Have we got anybody else here that would like to get up and tell us a story?
I'll give you a moment to think about it because I have to talk to my judges. We've had many discussions over the years whether we should have a prize winner or not. And as many people know, when we first started the whole series, we were funded by Regional Arts Victoria and it culminated in the Rod May Memorial Perpetual Trophy. And so that's why we sort of needed to, to pick winners so that at the end we had a whole lot to, to bring together. Sometimes we think, no, it's just the fun of hearing the stories and sometimes it's lovely just to to say the story that moved us all. So you can chat amongst yourself while I do, in fact, talk to my judges to see how we went. And they're very officious judges. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We've had a little conference and I have a first-time judge here. Well, it was a very brave move to take on being a judge here, so be go kind on it. And I said, would you like to get up and explain it? And Maz, yes. can you do the honours, please? Yes. Well, hello, everyone. That was very <laughs> official. Um, I really, um, Lorne and I, we judged. Um, we, I don't know if you've done it before, but I've judged a few competitions. So <laughs> two winners or first place holders tonight, please make a round of applause for Don and Petrus. Okay, so firstly, Joanna, excellent work coming on for the first time ever. I want to live up to that one day, so beautiful. I'm just going to go through them all. Um, well, Laurel, I loved that um, your whole thing was educational, that you're like, okay, we're going out, we'll cook me. I, that was one of my favourite parts. Trovi. Oh, Trovi, I think you're just funny as hell. So that was great. That was really good. Um, Don, I especially liked um, your commitment to finding things because I have recently only moved up here and I went to the tip for the first time, and it is so fun. So great, thanks. I share that passion too. Um, and Petrus, like I just said, yeah, I've just moved up here, and so the story about the moon was I've just experienced that like six months ago. So thank you. It explained how I feel and went. And that's the end of that. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you to Sarah on the bar, who comes along to the darkness. And thank you to the Dalesford Hotel for letting us have their back room. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Hi, I'm Zara, and you're listening to the Cicada Story Slam. The Cicada Story Slam is in a country town in Victoria named Dalesford. And it may be a small place, but the community and people are great. And I, if I don't say so myself, the stories are even better. I would like to acknowledge Annie Stewart and Maya Irel who made all this possible. And of course, everyone who helps out behind the scenes and you for listening. If you have a wild story and you're a part of our community, please feel free to come to the Cicada Story Slam and share your amazing stories because we'd love to hear them. And the story takes you there Don't know why, you don't know where 
But the story takes you Take refuge from the gloom Pellegrini's Cafe 8 a.m. Where the postcard's old and warm Their edges frayed and torn Paint pictures of a time way back when And the story takes you there You don't know where But the story takes Everybody's got a story they can tell Stories to make sense In this old world's defense Just make sure you say it well And the story takes you there You don't know why You don't know where Are you strong enough to take that down And let the story take Let the story take you there 